0: Hi, and welcome to Edelman Editions. This episode is powered by Gwen, Edelman's global women's equality network. In this episode, Kia Mitchum, a senior account exec in the London brand team, sits down with Elizabeth Wright, a Paralympic medalist in swimming, writer, and activist. Elizabeth helps us understand how disabilities vary by individual,
1: the challenges people with disabilities face, and how to be a better ally. Over to you, Kia. Welcome, Liz, and thank you for joining us today. We're absolutely delighted to have you and um, with us and looking forward to learning more about disability and how we can become better disability allies. I think it'd be really great if, if um, you could sort of start off this this podcast with telling us a bit more about your story and your background for those who aren't already familiar with you.
0: Of course. Thanks, Kia, so much for for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited um, to have this chat. Um, My name is Liz Wright. I uh, am Australian. You can probably tell by the accent. Um, And I was born and raised in in Sydney, uh, and I was born with a limb difference. So that is my uh, impairment. I've been disabled since birth. Um, and what that means is I was born with half my right arm missing and half my right leg missing and I use a prosthetic leg to be able to to get around it's like the the best thing ever honestly mobility aids are brilliant yeah and I was a Paralympic medalist for Australia Um, I kind of did that all through my teen years and it was such an exciting and wonderful experience and an experience that's really informed uh, the rest of my life and and really my career path, I think. So I've, I've led a very varied and interesting career. I'm, I'm, I see myself as one of those people that um, literally just has to try anything. If an opportunity pops up, I will <laughs> grab it and go. Try like anything Go once. Exactly. I will have a go. And I feel like that certainly with my career and my life. So um Once I retired from swimming, I I went to university and I studied fine art and I did a master's in philosophy. And um, off the back of that, I I went on exchange to Leeds University and fell in love with Leeds. And so I ended up moving to Leeds in the UK. And so here I am sitting on this podcast um, in, in my lounge room in Leeds. And from that point, you know, I've done speaking for the past 10 years, Uh, in schools and organisations and businesses, kind of talking um, and and running workshops and doing keynotes and things from topics as, uh, uh, you know, as wide as from from talking about the Paralympics and my own personal story, um, through to what is disability, through to more generalised DEI uh, kind of talks and workshops and things like that, because it's all very important to me, (laughs) all this stuff, um, especially around DEI and disability awareness, because that is my lived experience. And if i if i want to make the world a better place you know it kind of sounds a bit morbid before i <laughs> I pop off this planet, as you might say. Um, you know, this is really important work for for me and so many other disabled people to be doing um, so that the generations behind us can have more inclusion, more access, more understanding um, and more opportunities. So, yeah, so I've kind of, you know, done a lot of speaking around those those areas over the years. Um, and then more recently, you know, as with the, the pandemic, I think, especially when you're self-employed, a lot of people had to really pivot in what they were doing. And awesome. last year I got... Call- um, yeah, and it's but you know honestly coming back to those opportunities, right? It's it's I pivoted with the opportunities that presented themselves, and um, and I was given an opportunity to to get on board as an editor of Disability Review Magazine, um, and this had come off the back of I'd done some writing over the years and they'd found my writing and they thought that I might make a good editor. And I, You know, I've never edited a magazine before in my life, so I was a bit ambivalent taking it on, but I'm never one to shy away from an opportunity and a challenge and a learning opportunity. So I, I grabbed it with both hands and... And now off the back of that, I, I, I do speaking consultancy and magazine editing. So I edit Disability Review magazine, as well as Not Your Monolith, as well as a magazine I started and founded myself called Conscious Being, which is by and for disabled women and non-binary folk. So, yeah, it's been a very, very interesting, like very full background, you might say. Absolutely. Yeah, very,
1: very broad range of experiences. Um, so... If we sort of start off with your sort of Paralympic career in your swimming, when um, do you sort of make that decision to become an athlete and pursue swimming competitively?
0: Yeah, for, for me, swimming has always been a big part of my life. So, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Um, and when I was about two years old, my parents had a pool put in our backyard and um, I they just couldn't get me out of it. Once, once it was filled with water, I was literally, I think, permanently just living in that pool. Because for me, uh, really swimming and being in pools, being in water is really about freedom. Now, you know, there's certainly barriers and limitations in life but in water that all completely disappears and and melts away so you know for me swimming seemed like such a natural choice of sport to do and as I grew older I kind of became more aware of the Paralympics and I was starting to compete in local competitions I went to mainstream schools so I was competing against non-disabled kids and not doing too badly but it was really when I was about 12 I remember watching the Barcelona Paralympics and feeling so inspired and motivated about the possibilities that sport could have for me as a disabled person. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't long after the Paralympics kind of ended that it was announced that Sydney, Australia had won the right to host the 2000 Paralympic Games. And I remember being up at 2am, I think it was about 2am. <laughs> well past bedtime. Yeah, well past bedtime for a, a 12, 13 year old, right? <laughs> and they made the announcement my parents and I were just jumping up and down and screaming and I turned to my parents and I said to them I want to swim at those games I'm going to swim at those games and it's really hard for me to explain to people but it was really it was something that I've I you know there's only a few times I've ever been really 100 percent certain about something before and this was one of those times where I just knew deep deep down in my core in my DNA however you want to say it I just knew that I was going to swim at those Sydney 2000 games and my parents, being my parents, were a bit more unsure, a bit yeah. more dubious, a bit more like, "Okay, darling, we believe you," but it's <laughs> always trying to be up. overrealistic. Yeah, but I was just so determined, and you know, eventually my parents found me a coach, and I started training, and I loved training. I loved just everything about my sport, and I think that's the thing with with a lot of the times with sport, especially elite sport, you have to love what you're doing to to put in the work to actually reach that level. And and so I just – I loved it. I just loved the competition, loved the training, loved the people I was meeting, loved the team, loved everything about it. And, you know, from, from that point onwards, my, my rise was so fast through the ranks. You know, only three years after starting to train and deciding to swim at the, the Sydney Games, I was called up to represent Australia at the 1996 Atlanta Paralympic Games where Incredible. I – it's, I mean I look back and I think actually it wasn't a lot of a lot of people spend years and years yeah. and years like training to to reach that level and I just managed to do it in 3 years and and you know is that these games that I got you know uh, the the shock of my life when I won my first Paralympic medal which was a bronze in the 50 meters butterfly um but that really motivated me to keep on going and pushing for mm-hmm. the Sydney games and and I think once you have a taste of medals you want more <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing like very yeah, reasonable. I could definitely do with some more of of these. Um a little bit more bling around my neck, right? <laughs> so I got to the Sydney Games and thought I'd win another medal in the 50 meters butterfly. That didn't happen. Um, I came fourth and that was a bit of a shock and a bit of a worry, but it was a race I didn't expect to, to get a medal in. And that was the 400 metre freestyle. And it was a race I was ranked 15th in the world in. So to, to walk away with the silver medal to come second was absolutely astonishing. And, you know, especially to do that in front of my parents at the Sydney game was just really, really special. And, you know, the whole, the whole Paralympic experience was just amazing. And, it, you know, it's something that I'll never forget. It'll, it'll sit in my heart and my mind for the rest of my life.
1: Oh, and what incredible achievements. And having your family there as well, you must have just been so proud. Even yeah. more so, sort of seeing the shock on your face if you didn't think you were
0: going to a medal. I think they were just as shocked as well. And, <clears throat> you know, my eldest nephew was there. I remember walking out for this particular race and my nephew, who I think he was about six at the time, was up in the stands and he'd made this banner for me um oh. and, and like my nieces and nephews call me Bess, because you know obviously the name elizabeth it can get changed into many different wide variety <laughs> yep. of names so my nieces and nephews call me Bess, and so he had go auntie Bess" on this banner that he was oh. making his parents and my my parents like his grandparents kind of roll out so that <laughs> see it um and and I remember you know um after the race my my parents telling me my my home coach who was in the stands was apparently yelling yelling out this is you know, I'm not meaning to to offend any um, Americans um, here today, but apparently he was yelling out, "Beat the Yank, beat the Yank!" <laughs> um, as we were coming up to the last lap. And sadly, um, Stephanie, who was that Yank that he was yelling he was about to beat, um, she did come first. But apparently, her parents were sitting just two rows down in front of my coach. So oh my gosh, Incredible. All of it. So, you know, but it's all of these. Stories and things that that make it very human and very special I think so yeah, absolutely yeah.
1: so you also mentioned earlier that sort of swimming when you were much younger or being in a pool or in water gave you sort of a real sense of freedom but would you say there's any other challenge in your life that sports or swimming in particular have really helped you to overcome
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, a, a lot of the time I think that that whole water analogy and freedom is is one of the main things because, you know, I've, I've done a lot of speaking over the years in schools and, you know, one of the things I say to kids is like, can you do handstands and stuff like that? And really, I should be asking adults that as well because, come on, you can't forget how to do a handstand, right? Exactly. <laughs> or a roly-poly. But, you know, I, th- those are things that I can't do on land. And and while certainly I stand by the, the social model of disability, which, which you know, states that it's society that has to become more accessible for us. There's certainly going to be limitations on myself because of my limb difference. But you know, handstands and rolly polys are things I can do in water because the water's supporting my body to be able to do that. So, you know, certainly for me, water is very much about that freedom and takes away certain aspects or limitations that that impact me. But certainly wider than that, I think for me it's more um bar- not necessarily physical barriers or or access, but what sport has done for me is it's been that sense of community and shown me that mm-hmm. I can have community around disability that I can see myself reflected in the people around me which is so important because that's how we feel we belong to to a community it's how we feel we belong to this world to see ourselves in in the people around us so you know sport definitely gave me that and it's something that I try and replicate in my life now as an adult to make sure, you know, it's not about, oh, I only associate exclusively with disabled people, I certainly don't, but it's just making sure that I have that connection to people who understand my lived yeah. experience and who understand my experience of ableism and all of that stuff and having that connection so sport on so many different levels has really helped me overcome a lot of of different barriers and, and and issues both external and internal those kind of internal elements that we deal with
1: do you think there maybe have been any sort of coaches mentors or leaders in especially in your youth that have really a helped you to overcome those barriers or otherwise have helped sort of to challenge you and ultimately played sort of that role into your Paralympic journey.
0: Yeah, definitely, you know, I've I've kind of already mentioned one of my coaches who was yelling at <laughs> Yep, that one. Um, At the Sydney Games in the stands, but the interesting thing is, my very first um, coach—he was actually one of the officials at the Sydney Games. So he was actually down on pool deck with me for the actually the 400 meter race. And and with officials, when you're racing in the pool, you get allocated an official essentially for your lane, and they're just there just to check that yes, you've definitely touched the touch pad, you're not doing anything illegal in the stroke or anything like that that get you disqualified. I see the irony now as an adult that maybe this was slightly problematic. But my first coach that I ever had, Alan, was actually in the 400-meter freestyle, my official, to check <laughs> that I was doing everything all right. He may, be, may have been a bit biased, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe it wasn't the, that. <laughs> the But, you know, on hindsight, I'm like, okay, that could be problematic. But the thing is I, I really talk about um, Alan and Ross, my second coach, who was up in the stands yelling out, "Beat the Yank," because they both really had such a massive impact on my swimming career and and really, on my life in general. Alan was the coach who started me off on my paralympic journey. he He's the kind of man who is very gentle, very softly spoken, um but a real stickler for um very swimmers in not just making sure that we were doing the work that we were doing but if anyone had any issues with us or anything like that he Mm -hmm. he would stand up for us no end to make sure that we were getting the support that we needed or that we weren't being discriminated against in any way or anything like that so he was a very very special man in my life and very much a massive, massive impact impact on my life and, and a huge believer. I think he really helped me develop my self-belief. And then Ross, who was my second coach, so I moved over to Ross when I moved away from Sydney about two years before the Sydney Games. And a very different coaching style to to Alan But a coaching style that I think I needed at the time, because Mm -hmm. when I was training with Alan, I was basically the fastest swimmer in the squad. Um, So I didn't necessarily have the challenge that Mm -hmm. I needed at that time to take me to that next level. Whereas going into Ross's squad, I was actually training with non-disabled swimmers. So I was generally either last to go off or some of the last to go off when we when were doing sets and things but the point is it really pushed me and Ross yeah. really pushed me to really knuckle down and get the best out of myself even right down to you know how is your finger angled as you're entering the water wow. on that stroke can we modify that slightly to see if that's going to get you know scrape off half a second or wow. you know it was very specific about things which which was what I needed at the time to really Mm. just draw every element of the best out of myself and I think honestly that's why I I got the silver in the 400 I think if I hadn't have had that real refinement I don't think that would have happened so they're two men that had a very big impact on my life and really helped me to get to that next level and achieve my goals
1: yeah such such big impacts in very very different ways Mm. like you say yeah yeah do you feel that there's ever been sort of barriers or limitations placed on you um either by yourself or sort of your own perceptions or if not actually more broadly society's perceptions of you and your disability
0: oh i mean absolutely i think any any disabled person would immediately say yes Yes, there there certainly has been. And this is where, you know, I mentioned earlier briefly about the social model of disability and how I stand yeah. by that, but definitely one of the biggest barriers and limitations that I think in general as a community, the disability community face, is this very much entrenched uh, medical model of disability that really came about because of the Industrial Revolution and when medicine was really starting to take off. Mm-hmm. And and I think where people have, have almost, you know it's it's kind of developed as we've gone along through the decades but it's almost like this idea that people are here to be units of production as opposed to we're human beings and we're not perfect and we can't do everything and and i say that for everyone disabled and non-disabled not everyone can do every single thing it's yeah it's, Possible. So then, what the medical model states is, um, and and how it stemmed from this is that if you are disabled in any way, then it is the responsibility of medicine to fix your body so that you can have access and fit in and be included in and fit into society. So that's really problematic because, you know, case in point for me, I'm never going to grow my limbs back you know the medical model can't help me by making me miraculously grow limbs right and and it's the same for a lot of people in the disability community our impairments or conditions cannot be fixed so what i like about the social model of disability Um, which really addresses the barriers and limitations that the medical model really place on disabled people, is that it's about how we can make society more accessible and inclusive for disabled people with different impairments and conditions. And I think it's really important to educate people about that model, because the more people, the more organisations, the more community groups, the more charities, the more governments we can get on board um, and policymakers we can get on board around this particular way of looking at disability with the social model, the the much more inclusive and accessible life is going to become for all. Absolutely. People. So I think that's something really important that, that needs to be talked about a, a lot of the time constantly. Um, and of course, what that means is that you're going to address all of the the physical online um, and attitudinal um, access limitations that so many of us face and so you know what I would say to people is to really really educate yourself about that social model and how you could actually apply that to the role you're in the team you're in the business you're in the even even the wider community you're in so You know what, honestly, if you're going to your favourite restaurant and there's a few steps up to the door and there's no option for a ramp or a lift, raise it with the manager. Even if you're not with a disabled person, if you notice something that you think actually for a disabled individual that's going to cause an issue, I'm going to raise that with with, um, the manager that. That is, um, you know, allyship, which I know we'll, we'll probably talk about a little bit later on. Oh, yes, we will. Um, but, you know, that's just a hugely impactful but very basic example to give about a barrier, but how you as an individual could actually remedy that for for the wider community.
1: Yeah, and that's actually sort of a similar point that I was going to touch on as well, is that it's really about educating, educating yourselves and on a smaller scale, like you said, making simple suggestions to help make experiences and products and campaigns, you know, if you're looking at it from a sort of business perspective, um, more accessible and more inclusive. And actually sort of following on from that as well, it would be great if we could maybe talk a little bit more about sort of the importance of having disabled role models um, or people, you know, within the disabled community, not just within sports, but also across sort of media, social media, advertising or sort of wider brand campaigns.
0: For me, about representation with disability, we're, we're really stuck as a as society into really set stereotypes that are played out over and over again, that are not reflective of the actual lived experience of disabled people at all. And it's something that, you know, uh, as you say, whether it's in work, whether it's campaigns or recruitment or whatever it is that you're working on. Um, but I think, you know, it definitely applies across the board to, to all areas of of. People's lives um, is really addressing those stereotypes and really understanding why they're problematic Mm -hmm. and doing your best not to perpetuate them in, say, material that you're creating or a course that you're creating or. A presentation or marketing campaign or whatever it is that you're doing that you're not re- kind of replicating those particular stereotypes so I mean two in particular there's the tragedy idea of disability so the poor mm-hmm. poor me woe is me feel sorry for them you know it, 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 I'm not like having a go at almost. exactly and it's not that I'm having a go at charities in any way but charities tend to use that particular yeah, stereotype that that a lot yeah. because because what they're trying to do is they're trying to to bring more money into the charity and how best to do that then make non-disabled people feel sorry for disabled people. And that might be helpful for the charity to bring money in, but for the wider disability community, that narrative is not helpful at all because I don't feel like my life's a tragedy. I don't feel sorry for myself because of my limb difference. And it absolutely drives me up the wall when people say to me, and I've had this happen to me multiple times throughout my life, where they come up to me and they say to me, I feel sorry for you or I pity you. Mm. And I'm like, seriously, I've won three Paralympic medals. I've got three university degrees. I've like traveled the world. Seriously, you Nothing don't have to feel sorry to be for me. me. Like you really, really don't. Yeah. And it, that's, you know, one example of kind of that narrative that is really not helpful and really harmful to the disability community. The other example that I want to do and I hope I'm okay with saying this on the podcast but there's a concept out there called inspiration porn. Yes. And um, and there's a video by Stella Young if um if listeners can go and watch her TEDx talk. Um sadly she's not with us anymore. She's a young Australian activist. She died a few years ago but um before she died she did this amazing TEDx talk which is essentially she talks about inspiration porn. The best example of it I can give is you know the videos that get shared around Facebook. where it's like a little girl in a wheelchair where she might be playing basketball with her brother and her brother, like, you know, is encouraging her to throw the ball and then maybe he grabs the ball and pretends that it's her throwing it and it goes into the basketball hoop. And the whole premise of that is to make the viewer go, Oh, look, my life isn't that bad at all because look at this little girl's like it's it's this whole thing of, of like or it's the like, well, if that little girl can do that, or that little boy can do that, or that that, you know, and we get it with Paralympians as well. Well, that paralympian can do that or that person can do that, then maybe I should be trying harder. It's this whole thing of using disabled mm to inspire non-disabled people to either do better in their life or to feel better about their life. And again, this is hugely, hugely problematic for the disability community So, um, because it, we're not here to inspire people. I wasn't born and put on this planet to inspire people. I'm here just like everyone else to live a very human experience to try and muddle my way through life just like <laughs> everyone else the best that i can and um and yeah i don't need to be told constantly that i'm an inspiration or anything mm. like that i would say that definitely answers the question yes and i think
1: that's such a good point that you raise around um around inspiration porn that's definitely something that i'm seeing or i personally am seeing come up more and more especially off the back of the paralympic games the olympics this year um, we're actually close to sort of our time being up, sadly, although I could talk to you about, about this until the cows come home. Um, but I think sort of maybe a question to end on is sort of I know that online and on your social channels, you often talk about sort of non-disabled people being hesitant to ask you questions about your disability or, you know, changing their behaviour because they're scared to say or do the wrong thing. Um, and I think the same actually applies for a lot of like brands and businesses as well. So what would you say are sort of some key things or key takeaways maybe that, you um, non-disabled people should stop or start doing mm-hmm. when it comes to talking about
0: disability? Yeah, my my biggest piece of advice is to get comfortable with saying the word disability and disabled because mm-hmm. um, there's, there's kind of a meme that goes around social media in the disability community where it's like, disability is not a dirty word. You're not swearing if you say the word disability. It's, it's not offensive if you use the word disability. And interesting, and um, you know, there's some research recently done, and don't quote me on it, I think it was by the Charity Scope, um, mm-hmm. but I may be wrong. Um, but there was recent research done where it was discovered that a majority of disabled people do prefer identity first language. So using the term disability um, and, and calling themselves disabled people or disabled person, mm-hmm. I certainly call myself a disabled person that's how I identify of course some people do use person first which is saying like uh, I'm a person with a disability or people with disability but certainly you know majority of disabled people prefer disabled people yeah but what I think is that that's the disability community for some reason in the non-disabled community there's a lot of fear around that term disabled and the amount of times I've been called you know differently abled or special needs or handicap or if or even if I do say the word disabled, I've had people say to me, Don't don't say that about yourself. I'm like, what did I say? What did I say about myself? I just said who I am, how I identify. So I think it's just not being scared to use the term disability you know I understand you know it's a lot of unpicking of ableism in non-disabled people and as well as uh, disabled people themselves but honestly there is nothing so you're never going to offend someone if you use the term disability so that's probably my my little piece of nugget of advice that I wish people would stop using terms like differently abled and special needs and start using the word disability definitely but a big part of that as well
1: is just educating yourself more, isn't it? Yeah. Just so you you know yeah. you know what correct language to use or make sure you're not using unconscious bias, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. It's
0: all exactly. about learning. And that's the thing. I think it's just seeing how you feel when you use different terms or behave around disabled people. You know, obviously be aware of how... how the recipient's feeling as well that they're the core most important person to be aware of but certainly if it tap into you, into your feelings do you feel uncomfortable and then ask yourself why why am mm-hmm. I feeling uncomfortable because that's the starting point to start unpicking any of those unconscious biases that you have especially around language <laughs> with disability <laughs> ever-evolving so you definitely yeah. need to keep up and definitely need yeah. to, to learn <laughs> definitely
1: uh- what a great great note to end on I think I think we can probably sort of um, I'll leave you to enjoy the rest of your sunny sunny afternoon but thank you so much for talking to us today um, about disability and how how we can become better allies and I think I could probably speak on behalf of everyone listening today when I say there's so much to be learned and actually the information you've shared has been so insightful and um, and really interesting to learn from in fact so thank, thank you. you
0: thank you so much Keir it's been a pleasure
1: thanks Liz